especially if you're visiting with us, we're very glad that you're here and invite you to be back and uh, with us at any opportunity that you have. We're looking forward to a series that has been mentioned this month on the book of Revelation. Uh, we all struggle with trying to uh, get all of our information in, and uh, I'm going to try to move quickly this morning, which is not something I'm, I'm known for very well, but we're going to try to get this in real, real good, and hopefully uh, everyone will, will really benefit. I'm really excited about the series. I appreciate the guys that are involved in the, in the study this month. And I know there's a lot of capable men that are not on the schedule this month that could teach on this book, but uh, these, this is the lineup that you have this go around, and, and hopefully you'll be benefited by this. In the book of Revelation, we read of locusts that look like horses. We read that, that they wore crowns of gold on their head, and their faces looked human, but they had women's hair, hair that looked like a woman's. We read that they have tails and stings like a scorpion, that they have wings. We read about dragons and beasts and falling stars. And it's one of those things that we look at and say, man, that's scary. That's intimidating. What am I supposed to make of this? What in the world does this mean? How do I understand this? Maybe you've been around some of your friends and they've told you that the things written in the book of Revelation are about to take place, that they're all about to happen. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of confusion about what these things mean. And, and you may look at the, the word revelation, but what does that even mean? Why do they call this the book of revelation? And revelation only means revealing of the truth or to take the cover off of, to reveal the truth, to, to make something known, disclosure of the truth. So it's something that's sealed or concealed that we don't know, as our prop is showing us here this morning. It's something that's sealed up and we don't know what's underneath this, or if there is something underneath this. So what we're going to do is take the cover off of this prop and see what is revealed. And what is revealed is the truth, and that's what the book of Revelation does. It reveals some spiritual truth to us that was previously sealed by the prophet Daniel, or by the book, in the book of Daniel. And there's a, a, a word that you've probably heard thrown around before, and that's the, the word apocalypse. And you may wonder, what in the world does that mean? It's kind of a scary word, kind of an intimidating word. All that is is the Greek word for the word revelation. So the apocalypse of John or the revelation of, of Christ, that's all that means. And so hopefully some of the things that we cover today is going to help you th think about these things. And are these things happening in the near future? It's useful to understand two basic principles regarding any revelation. And one of the, the first principle about that is any revelation makes something known that was previously unknown. Just like we took the seal off and now we know what's underneath there, the truth. So it's making something known that was previously unknown. And let me give you an example of that. Uh, the mold penicillin. The mold penicillin was discovered in 1928 to be very effective in uh, curing illnesses and infections. Now, previous to that time, it was still true but it was unknown. We didn't really know the truth about that and how it all worked together and how that could be beneficial in fighting infection. But since then, it's saved millions of lives and helped people through fighting infections, even though that was previously unknown or sealed, concealed. But it was still true. And the second principle regarding any uh, revelation is that nothing is revealed if the information is not understandable. So once truth is moved from that concealed or sealed category to the revealed category, then it can be understood by the person who is discerning and trying to figure out exactly what all that means. 
And sometimes the book of Revelation takes a lot of effort. It takes uh, some work and discernment of figuring out what it's trying to tell us. But once truth has moved from that concealed to the revealed category, now it can be understood. Um, Now this is why Daniel was told to seal his category because information that is way off into the future cannot be understood. So Daniel was told, hey, seal this up. In Daniel chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, he says, And I heard, but I understood not. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed and sealed until the time of the end. So until the time it came for fulfillment of that, it was sealed, it was concealed until until this time. But to John, in Revelation chapter 22 and verse number 10, the words were, He saith unto me, Seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. So to his reading audience, John gave new information decoding what Daniel had sealed some 600 years earlier that wouldn't have been understandable back at that time. So thus the name Revelation. Okay, And also in, in uh, Revelation chapter 1, in verse number 3, it talks about blessed is the person who reads and hears and obeys or, or keeps those things that are written. So this is very beneficial to the readers at the time that they received the letter, who this letter was to, and it's also very relevant to us as well. And I, I, again, I'm so excited about the, the information that we'll learn this month, and hopefully you're going to be blessed and benefited by that greatly. So try to follow along this morning as we go. There are basically five common views or interpretations of the book of Revelation. If all those who write books or speak on the radio or on TV about Revelation and what the book means or their interpretation, they basically generally fit into five groups. Uh, And this is the the five that we'll discuss shortly this morning. And so they they wouldn't all agree upon every little thing and upon every little detail, but basically and generally there are five different groups or views uh, about what the book says about itself. And we're going to discover, we're going to search through these five views real quick, and then we're going to talk about seven keys to understanding that the book of Revelation says about itself. And that's going to enable us to uh, decide which view is most in harmony with what the book says about itself. Because we're interested in what uh, the Bible says and not my interpretation, not my ideas and not some man's ideas, but what the book says about itself. So we'll do that this morning. The first view is the fall of Rome, that the book of Revelation is written about the fall of Rome. It was written uh, late in the first century uh, to the Christians that were about the coming persecution by the Roman Empire that was going to happen. So Christ sends the book of Revelation uh, about this coming trial, about this coming persecution, and that He will eventually bring down this empire in defeat, and that they're fixing to undergo a serious threat because the Roman Empire is going to try to persecute the church out of existence. So that's the gist of this view. Also, there's another view about the destruction of Jerusalem, and that the, the, the view is that, that the book of Revelation is about that. It, and that happened in 70 A.D. According to this view, well, Revelation would be written around 65 A.D., just before the uh, destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in 70 A.D., and this view was, says that it was written to warn Christians about the Roman army that was coming to Jerusalem to destroy the city at that time. After all, Jesus had prophesied in Matthew 24 about the destruction of Jerusalem, that that would be a very historical, important event that would happen in history. 
And all the terrible plagues and events and things that are written in the book of Revelation are written to the people in Jerusalem, in the city of Jerusalem. And we're going to talk more about the harlot in just a moment and what that character represents. But uh, to people holding this view, that the harlot is the city of Jerusalem. Another view is it predicts or foretells world history that this that the book of Revelation is just about the prediction of history between the first coming of Christ and between the second coming of Christ. It foretells major events in the world during that time period. It gives a glimpse in advance about Roman emperors and about some of the reformists like John Calvin and Martin Luther and some wars and the Roman Catholic Church. And a lot of this uh, uh, portion of this view focuses on the, the Roman Catholic Church. But basically it's saying it sketches, it outlines the political and religious events between the first and second coming of Christ. And that is pictured both as the second beast, or uh, the, the, yeah, the second beast of Revelation and the heart of Revelation chapter 17. And we'll talk some more about those in a minute. Hopefully that'll make more sense by the end of the morning. There's also another view called the principles, philosophical, or repeating cycles view. I know that's, that's a mouthful, it's saying a lot, all kind of meaning the same thing. The proponents of this view will say that the book of Revelation is not really about people or nations or cities at all, but it's just a certain sequence of events that repeats itself over and over and over throughout time. So it's a philosophy that, or cycle that repeats itself. And this cycle is that wherever the name of Jesus is proclaimed, that well, wherever that goes, well, there's going to follow after it, uh, religious and political persecution. And that cycle just repeats itself over and over. And yeah, sure, that happened during the Roman Empire, they'll say, but that happened, uh, has happened throughout times. It can fit equally well into any time period in any cycle of time of proclamation of Jesus and persecution to follow. And a lot of people think, of, uh, as followers of this view, that that story is told seven times, repeated, that cycle's repeated seven times throughout the book of Revelation. And finally, we have the future view. And this is the one that you're probably going to hear most about. Most Christians probably believe uh, this, this type of view in the denominational Christian world. Uh, it was promoted by the Left Behind series of novels and the movies uh, that, that went on a few years back. The followers of this view claim that nearly all of the events in Revelation are going to happen in the near future, but in the future time. All of it is happening in the future. And there will soon come a time when Christians will be taken away. They're just going to disappear. And those that were dead Christians that have already died before this time are going to be raised from the dead, and they're going to go into heaven uh, and be raptured into heaven for seven years. And for seven years, while there's uh, tribulation and a time of, of war over Israel here on this earth, they're going to be in heaven with Christ. And the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt during this time period. And in the midst of all this, Jesus is going to return and put down the kingdom, uh, uh, establish his own kingdom, excuse me, here on the earth. So it's about an earthly kingdom, as, according to this view. And he'll reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years with those that were raptured and come back with him and those that were left here on earth during that seven years of tribula tribulation that were faithful to him. He's going to reign and there's going to be bliss here on earth for a thousand years as he establishes his kingdom here on earth. And at the end of that time, well, um, 
there'll be a third resurrection. It'll be the end of time, and the resurrection of the wicked will happen, and they'll be separated into good and evil, and they'll be cast into heaven and into hell. And that's the gist of this view, and that's the five basic general views on the book of Revelation. Now we want to talk about seven keys to understanding the book of Revelation and see how they, they all fit together with some of these views that we've just talked about. So we're going to talk about the first thing about the book is written in symbols. Let's read in Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it to his angel unto his servant John. So notice these words, sent and signified. He symbolized it. He tells it it is written in symbols. It is written in a different way. So one of the first keys to the book of Revelation that we see, it's clearly different from other books of the Bible. We've already mentioned about seven-headed dragons and seven-headed beasts with horns and crowns and a woman standing on the moon and seas turning to blood and all these peculiar things that we read about in the book of Revelation. Obviously, we're not reading some book like Ephesians or Colossians or something like that. It's, it's different in the way that it is, it is mentioned and the language that it uses. It's very different in that way. So how do we approach such a book? How do we even jump in and try to start studying the book of Revelation? That's what, kind of what we want to get to this morning. Should we think that a dragon is actually large, large enough to draw a third of the stars out of the air or sweep a third of the stars out of the air with its tail? Or is that a figure of speech? Is that something we take literal? Or is that something we take as a figure of speech? You know, the Bible uses a lot of figures of speech throughout the Scriptures. Jesus calls Himself the, the bread of life and the water of life. So do we actually think that he is actually a loaf of bread or a cup of water? What does he mean by that? Well, he's not saying I'm bread. He's not saying I'm water literally. He's saying I'm important to your spiritual life as bread and water are to your physical life. You see, it's a figure of speech that he uses to get us to symbolize what that, what that means and what he's saying. There are figures of speech that teach us that he's essential to our spiritual life. So how do we know when to take something literal and how to know when to take something figuratively? Well, again, he's told us here in this book that most of the things are going to be written in symbols or figuratively, in signs. If I tell you this morning, well, I'm freezing to death, or if I tell you I'm burning up, well, you know that if I'm burning up, you're not going to call the fire department. I'm not really on fire you're just going to know that I'm a little warmer than I want to be. I'm, I'm just uncomfortable. It's a little hot. So that's, that's a figure of speech that I'm using. So we understand how the figures of speech work. So we come to this book of Revelation with a long list of characters and events that appear absurd or extreme if they're taken literally. So we're going to take most of it figuratively. So studying what the text says, and what the message really is, and what he wants us to get out of that text and out of that section of Scripture is very important. And that's what he's pointing his readers to, and that's what he's pointing us to, and what, what, the, what the words are written. So apocalyptic literature is something that is normally written in visions and signs. It uses animals and numbers and figures in, in ways that um, are, are figurative, in ways that are not... Uh, in a literal sense. <clears throat> it's 
So when we come to the book of Revelation, we take some things literally because there really was an island named Patmos. There's really cities named Ephesus and Smyrna, Thyatira, all those seven churches of Asia. There, there are literal places like that. But what about uh, the time that it uses horses and dragons and beasts and rivers of blood and a woman standing on the moon and all these different things? Well, we're going to wear our figurative hat most of the time. So think about this, and this is what it says, but this is what it means. So it's something a little bit different in what it says versus what it means. It's a symbol, it's a sign that's given to us of what we're supposed to get, the message, but it means something else. And I'll make that make more sense here in a minute, I think, so hang on with me. Also, in this first few verses, we also see that it's it gives us a time period for the book of Revelation. Things which must shortly come to pass. And look at all these other verses we have listed here. The time is at hand. It's something that's going to happen quickly. So it gives us a, a message and a lesson of, of, hey, these things are going to start happening in a quick sense and not things that are happening a long, long time into the future. So obviously the writer is emphasizing and he wants us to get these things are going to start happening pretty quick in a relatively short time frame. And you think about these verses of Jesus where He says, I come quickly, and people may say, well, that that refers to the second coming. Well, apparently it doesn't in these particular verses because He hasn't returned yet. His second coming hasn't happened. So he's He's talking about His coming to fulfill the predictions and promises that He's made in this book. These things that are written down are going to shortly come to pass. It's going to happen quickly. And it's also important that we put ourselves in the shoes of the seven churches to which this book was written to understand that he is writing to them about things that are relatively uh, going to happen relatively quick and come to pass. They wouldn't have seen this as, hey, he's writing something that's going to happen 2,000 plus years in the future. They wouldn't have seen it that way at all. And what benefit would that have been to them that was about to undergo this terrible Roman persecution to tell them about something that's going to happen 2,000 years in the future. And also think about how he told Daniel to seal his prophecy because it was so far in the future that people couldn't understand it. Would he not have told John to seal his prophecy if it was going to be 2,000 plus years in the future? These things are going to shortly come to pass and, and start happening. So these Christians and people would have understood, hey, this is a message for us. These things are going to happen during our lifetime start happening during our time. Look for these things to appear and happen quickly. Another uh, key for us to get is it is given to comfort persecuted Christians. The underlying theme throughout the book of Revelation is no doubt the persecution of Christians. It has been said that the blood of Christians drips off every page. And you can see that as you see these different things that are mentioned about the great tribulation, the war, the killing of saints, the beheading of saints, how that they were losing their lives and their own heads were being chopped off. There's great tribulation. In chapter 1 and verse number 9, John says that he is their companion in tribulation. He is undergoing this tribulation as well. And one of the... In, Five of the seven letters to the churches that Brother David is going to talk to us about soon this month, uh, John mentions specifically persecution of those churches. To those who first received the book and were about to undergo the worst persecution that the church had ever faced, these Christians needed to know what not only what was coming, 
but that they would be victorious, that God would settle accounts. He would make it just and right in the end, and they needed to know that. And one of the very key theme section of verses is in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And it says, When they had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So here we have this theme of the book of Revelation of persecution. And he says, Lord, how long until these, these people that have killed us are brought to justice? And he says, yet just a little bit, just a little bit longer. And he also tells them maybe a, a message that we don't consider as comforting. There's more of your fellow Christians that are going to die. More people are going to die before these things take place or before more persecution is coming. You may not like that answered. You may not understand that. But I think as we see the book unfold more and more, we will understand that and receive that. You know, there's bad news of persecution, but there's good news about God settling accounts. God is fair. God is just. And he is righteous. And He's going to make it right. And they're going to win in the end. Christians win in the end. God wins. Family of God. He's going to honor those that are suffering this persecution. So be faithful. It's a message of encouragement and help and comfort to those who are undergoing this persecution. Another key is that he identifies the dragon and the two beasts. And we'll spend a little bit of time here uh, as this unfolds and we see some of these major characters in the book. We've talked about Revelation using symbols or signs to, to reveal its message. And some of these symbols portray major characters in the story. In Revelation chapter 12, the dragon is introduced, and he's there in the, in the, throughout the rest of the remainder of the book. The book pictures him as red with seven heads and ten horns and a crown on each of those horns. Or excuse me, on each of those heads, seven horn, crowns. And this suggests power and rulership. With his tail, he sweeps a third of the stars from the sky. So we see power, and we see this is any large animal that we can relate to here on earth. It's just not some large animal. It's, it's something more than that. It symbolizes something different. He persecutes a woman and her child. He is thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. He brings up two beasts to be his agents or helpers in persecuting the church. He's later thrown into the lake of fire. So there's a lot of things that are said about this dragon. Later, uh, excuse me, in, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 and 20, verse 2, it's very evident what this symbolizes because it tells us, it spells it out. Now, it doesn't do this for everything, for every character, but it does for the dragon. It tells us specifically that the dragon is Satan. So it says dragon, but it means Satan. So it symbolizes the symbol, or the word is dragon, but it symbolizes Satan. So we know what that symbol and what that means, how it's written in symbols and signified to us. Uh, in the last verse of chapter 12, the dragon says, it says that the dragon goes to make war with those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. In 13.1, we see this fierce red beast coming up out of the sea, 
or out of the water. And in 13.7, it says the beast makes war with the saints. So we see that it's clear that Satan brings forth the beast to be his agent in persecuting Christians. So the first identifying mark that tells us what the beast is, it is he is a great or major persecutor of Christians. In 13, uh, chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, as a beast comes into view, we see that he has ten horns spread on seven heads, and on each horn is a crown. His body's like a leopard, his mouth is like a lion, and his paws like a bear. So when we think of that description, or the people that received this message think about that description, what would they have immediately thought of? Or what would, was that calling their minds back to remember? Remember in Daniel chapter 7, he uses those same exact animals to portray a message of these great world powers. Remember that message in Daniel chapter 7, how that this great major world empire, in Daniel the lion was Babylon. And the bear was the Medes and the Persians. And the leopard was Greece. And the beast was the Roman Empire. Um, he also uses those same four empires uh, to represent the, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. And in that great, terrible image, remember, that he dreamed about and how the head of gold was Babylon. Jason's going to talk more about that this afternoon. John is clearly suggesting that this beast, like the one in Daniel, represents a major world empire. In 13 verses 6 through 8, it gives us more information or clues about the identity of the beast. Here the beast is given four qualities that we read of here in verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> Excuse me. He blasphemes God. He makes war with the saints. He reigns over every tribe, people, language, and nation, representative of the entire world is what that means. The inhabitants of the earth worship, worship the beast. So the beast stands for a worldwide empire with a religion that deifies or makes gods out of its own leaders. They become objects of worship. It opposes God and is a great persecutor, a great uh, major persecutor of Christians. In 17, 9 through 10, it tells us that these seven, seven heads of this beast represent seven kings. John says that five of the seven kings have already reigned. One is reigning at the time of his writing, and one is yet to come. This verse also tells us these heaven, seven heads stand for seven, not only stand for seven kings, but they represent seven hills. Seven hills. What would come to the mind of those Christians who have all these major clues and think about these things? Well, it's known throughout history that Rome is a city that was built upon seven hills. As a matter of fact, they have a name for every one of those hills. You can read in uh, secular history about these hills, and about that being the, the city built on seven hills. So one, only one entity falls into the uh, category of all these clues, and that is the Roman Empire. So this worldwide empire that ruled during John's day was the fourth beast uh, mentioned by Daniel. Its emperors were worshipped. Its capital city was Rome. It was built on seven hills. It was a strong persecutor of Christians. So it says beast, but what does it mean? means Roman Empire. So the first beast is the Roman Empire. Okay, the dragon also, or Satan, also brings up a second beast in Revelation chapter 13, verses 11 through 18. The beast has two horns like a lamb. But we're given other clues. He arises with the first beast in chapter 13, of the Roman Empire, and goes down in defeat with the first beast 
in Revelation chapter 19. So this beast exists concurrently with the first beast. And the second beast also exercises its authority in the sight of the first beast. So they rise and fall, exist and work together. The second beast speaks like a dragon, meaning it's the uh, uh, tool of Satan. And the second beast is presented as having one mission, to set up images and statues statues of the heads of the beast of the Roman Empire, or the Roman emperors, the heads of the beast, the Roman Empire, and force people to worship them. So we're beginning to see what the second beast might be. To accomplish this, he deceives with false miracles, with economic pressure, and even kills those who won't worship the beast. So how would the Christians of this time period in which the book was written identified this beast, which his sole purpose was to worship the uh, empire, emperors of the Roman Empire? Beginning particularly in the uh, reign of Roman Emperor Domitian, as he reigned at the time of the book of Revelation was being written in AD 81 through 96, Roman emperor worship became a major deal in the Roman Empire. They erected uh, elaborate images and built statues and idols and all these huge temples to Roman emperors where you had to go in and worship those people in the Roman Empire. Matter of fact, they had to take a pinch of incense and throw it on an altar and burn it and say, Caesar is Lord. And refusing to do that is, was considered an act of treason against the Roman Empire. And also refusing to uh, re- worship the emperors would make you an enemy of the state and make you one who is going to suffer great persecution. And certainly that happened to the early Christians in this area. To those in the seven churches of, of Asia to whom this was written, uh, there would have been no difficulty of them understanding and knowing, hey, this second beast is the cult of emperor worship, forcing them to, to, uh, to worship the emperors in that, in that area. And also in that city of Ephesus, right off the major downtown market square area, there was a huge temple uh, built to three Roman emperors, Vespasian, Titus, and Domitian, right off the city square. So that identifies uh, these, these uh, beasts and, and, and dragons that we talk about. So dragon, Satan, first beast, the Roman Empire, second beast is the cult of emperor worship. Okay, Now, it also, the book identifies the harlot, which is Babylon. And notice some of the things it says about the, in these sections of verses that we have listed here. The harlot is introduced in Revelation chapter 16. She's a great city, it says in verse number 18. She commits fornication with kings. She rides upon or rules over the first beast in verses 3 and 7. She's dressed luxuriously in purple and scarlet and wears precious jewels. And basically, just a side note, at this time there was a coin that was in circulation in this area of the Roman province of Asia that had a picture of Rome. It was a Roman coin, and it had a picture of a beautiful woman that was dressed all nice and fancy that was in circulation at this time. Matter of fact, apparently there's a picture of one of those, or actually one of those in the British Museum that you can see. She holds in her hand a golden cup filled with the blood of the saints, of which she has drank so much of the blood of the saints she's intoxicated with it. So the harlot is a city that rules over the beast, the Roman Empire, who leads the kings of the world in immorality. She's rich and luxurious, and she leads in the persecution and killing of Christians. 
So early Christians would have certainly recognized to be this as the city of Rome. The harlot is a city, and it's the city of Rome. She also wears a headband or has a mark on her forehead saying Babylon in 17 verse number 5. Her name is Babylon. You think about Babylon and how that fits into the picture. You think Babylon was the uh, great empire, great world power that persecuted Christians in Daniel's time. Now, that, certainly that's an appropriate name for a, a great world power that's going to persecute Christians during this coming time, uh, time of book, this book was written. So another key to see that this uh, is the unveiling of the book of Daniel. <clears throat> Excuse me. Got to take a breath for a minute. <laughs> Some of the first century referred to Rome as Babylon. That was common uh, that they referred to it as Babylon. So what's the next key? Identify the 1260 days. There's a time period that, that is mentioned uh, several times here in the book of Revelation in chapters 11, 12, and 13, five different times. And it's all referring to the same amount of time, but twice it's called 1260 days, twice 42 months, and once time times and half a time or three and a half years. All those are different ways referring to the same period of time or the same length of time. And there are different things that it says that happens during this time. First, the Gentiles tread over the holy city for 42 months. 1260 days, two witnesses, God's people were persecuted in the city during that time and then killed in the city of the beast. For 1260 days, a woman precious to God was nourished and protected from Satan. For three and a half years, God nourishes and protects the woman from Satan for times, times, and half a time. And also for 42 months, the beast makes war with the saints. So no matter what it uses, days or months or years, the activity mentioned is always an attack on what God considers precious. And that's His people, that's His church, that's Christians. So no matter what the time period, that's what it's referring to. In two of the events, Satan's the attacker. In three of the events, the Roman Empire is the attacker. So the 1260 days would be a time of persecution of God's people, and particularly Satan using or directing the Roman Empire in this suffering and persecution during that time period, or the attack. The Roman Empire persecuted Christians basically from about AD 90 to AD 300. Remember, time is also representative figuratively, so it's not a literal three and a half years, but it's a period of time that the saints are going to be persecuted by the Roman Empire. So it doesn't last forever. It's a limited time period, as evidence symbolized by the three and a half years. But what it means is this is a time period that you're going to be persecuted. Persecution is going to take place. There's another mention of this type of language in the book of Daniel. Another clue given to us. In Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 25, it's the only other scripture where these time periods or this type of time period is referred to and mentioned. There in Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 25, it says, um, what, um, excuse me, and he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear of the saints of the Most High and think... Uh, change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until time, times, and the dividing of time. So the same type of language. So what we're supposed to get out of that. So again, this 1260 days is a time period of persecution for the Christians by the Roman Empire. And finally, the last uh, key that we see from the book of Revelation, or the one we'll discuss this morning, is it identifies the kingdom to be in existence 
at the time of John or at the time of this writing. Revelation speaks of a kingdom. And since some teach that the kingdom of God is, is going to be, uh, a Revelation teaches that, and it's going to be a reign of Christ here on earth, is that what the book says? We want to examine that and see if the book of Revelation or the letter says that. In John chapter 1 and verse number 6, excuse me, Revelation 1 verse number 6, John says that Christ made us to be a kingdom of priests to serve God. He made the kingdom is in existence. He speaks of it in past tense. It's already here. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 9, John says that I'm your companion in the kingdom in this tribulation. He speaks of it being in existence at this time. The kingdom's there. It's not something that's coming. It's something that's already here. And he also refers to them being a kingdom of priests. So it's a spiritual kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom, it, uh, as some teach. In, in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, Christ was extolled as worthy because he uh, purchased the church. He purchased men for God from the world, from the entire world, every nation and tongue and language. And he established his kingdom. So we see that this kingdom is here at this time. It's not something in the future. It's something that, that, that's already here. And also we see that he gives a promise at the end of this. May them kingdom priests to our God that they shall reign on or over the earth. Again, this victory that will happen. That they will be victorious over their persecutors at some point. So let's take a, a quick picture of these uh, we've learned about the views. We've learned about these seven keys. So let's compare them real quick as we close this morning. So this future view, again, future means still to come. They're thinking the ones that, that live and think about this type of uh, this view or interpretation of Re Revelation, they think we're now basically living in Revelation chapter 3. And the rest of it is all yet to come in the future. But remember what we read about the book? The book said... These things are going to shortly come to pass. It's going to happen quickly. But this approach says the major thrust of the book hasn't even happened after 2,000 plus years. The future time view also includes a modern war over the Middle East or in the Middle East. This battle of Armageddon, which is what they say. But, but you know, you think about if there, John was writing to these Christians who were being persecuted during this time about some war that was going to go on 2,000 plus years in the future. That wouldn't have offered much um, you know, benefit, encouragement to them uh, during this time of persecution and encouragement. Uh, so Revelation is, again, written in a literal, uh, in a figurative sense, sorry, I'm getting tied, tied up here, takes most of the book in a literal way instead of a symbolic way in the way it was written. It was told us in the first verse, it's written symbolically. And they say, well, John just didn't have a word for helicopters, so he used the word locust. He didn't have a word for tanks, so he described it as horses with fire and smoke coming out of their mouth. And the sea turning to blood, well, that's just modern-day pollution. You see, those are, those are symbols, and that's the way that they uh, try to explain these type of things. The first beast, they say, is the Roman Antichrist, and the second beast will be the Jewish Antichrist that come just before or right at the end of the time and deceive the nations, to deceive the nations. But you know, the people that received this letter from John, they would have been familiar with his writings, and they would have known that John wrote in 1 John chapter 2 about there being many Antichrists in the first century. He said many will come and, and claim to be Christ and you know, this divinity, the reign of Christ is what they're denying. That's the Antichrist. Uh, 
It's not, and they wouldn't have thought of one or two people coming at the end of time that would be the Antichrist. They wouldn't have thought of it in that way at all. Also, they make the kingdom physical here on earth. And as we mentioned this morning, that's not, it's a spiritual kingdom, not of this world. And it was already in existence at this time, not something going to come in the future. And also, they take the 1260 days to be the time of war in Israel. And we've seen that that 1260 days is just a time of persecution of Christians and not a time of war in the future. So certainly this wouldn't be the best view for us to take, and not in harmony with what the Bible says about itself. What about this principles for philosophical repeating cycle view? This view proposes that the book of Revelation has a message for all times and all places, and I agree with that. There's a relevant message for us that we should get out of that. However, Revelation's primary audience was those seven churches of Asia. And that the message that was first received from them in that first century, the book was for that time. It's deeply rooted in their time and in their circumstances for them. The book says it's primarily about what would soon take place, but this view makes it equally applicable in all times and all places. The first beast is any persecuting power. The second beast, any false religion or philosophy opposed to Christianity. And the other things that we see here, the harlot being the temptations for world in the entire Christian era, none of that fits. That doesn't fit. It takes it out of its time and primary meaning and primary message that's given to us. But it foretells world history. According to this view, the Revelation predicts the history of the world between the first and second comings of Christ. Certainly that's not what the original readers would have, would have got out of that. While there are some predictions of historical events in the book, it doesn't seek to outline the entire religious and political events that take place between the first and second coming of Christ. Again, that takes it out of its original uh, uh, circumstance and, and what it's for by sketching also the, the history of the next 2,000 plus years. Again, that doesn't provide any uh, you know, comfort for them in their uh, certain situation, their current situation, excuse me. This view takes the second beast to be the Roman Catholic Church. Certainly that doesn't fit either. Matter of fact, the Roman Empire fell before the Roman Catholic Church came into existence. And so and they you remember how we read about the the second beast rides upon the first beast or and and certainly that doesn't happen here. Uh, the Catholic Church did not arise until after the Roman Empire and it doesn't seek to force worship of Roman emperors. And this view takes the 1260 days to be the entire dark ages, but again, takes it out of its time and place. Sorry, I'm trying to hurry and I'm just messing up, so I need to slow down. <laughs> what about the destruction of Jerusalem? Well, this view is primarily about the, uh, this destruction in time of, uh, of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This view takes the harlot or the city to be the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem certainly didn't rule over or set upon the back of the first beast, Roman Empire. This view takes the 1260 days uh, to be the time of Roman siege of Jerusalem, but really that wasn't a war upon um, the the Christians in the city of Jerusalem. Most of them had already left by the time that this siege had happened in Jerusalem. So this view also uh, requires that the book be written before 70 AD, sometime around 65 AD, and evidence just doesn't support that. Even in secular history, the earliest... um, Evidence that Revelation, the book of Revelation is in circulation is in 95 A.D. And that would be about the time 
about the Roman Emperor Domitian that we talked about earlier, and several other, other things that, that fit during that time period. It doesn't describe the, the situation of the churches in the early 60s. They would have been very early and, and new congregations. So that also takes that out of, uh, out of its place and its message. So this wouldn't be the best view for us to take either. What about the fall of Rome? Well, the, the book was written to Christians late in the first century that were about the coming persecution of the Roman Empire, that Satan was going to use the Roman Empire and this cult of emperor worship to persecute, attempt, attempt to persecute the church out of existence. It encourages Christians to be faithful unto death during this terrible time of persecution and killing, during this critical time. It takes all these figures as symbols, uh, as symbols figuratively, Satan, uh, a dragon being Satan, the first beast being the Roman Empire, second beast, the cult of inter- emperor worship, a harlot is Rome. And certainly this fits in this time period of shortly come to pass. You see how these things fit together? This really fits all the seven keys that we're, we're talking about here. Symbolic of time of the Ro- uh, Roma- Roman persecution in 12, 1260 days. And the kingdom is spiritual, not of this world. And God will eventually bring down the persecutor, the Roman Empire. God wins. You win if you're on His side. Get that message this morning. It's so important. So which view is the best one for us to take? Well, the fall of the Roman Empire. While there are so many clues that give to the, uh, to the meaning of Revelation... And yeah, certainly this doesn't answer all the questions in the book of Revelation. I think this is a a good how-to approach, how to study the book, how to approach it, and help us through that. It's a very important factor in the process of the book of Revelation and studying it is also to put ourselves in their shoes there in the first century to whom it was written and think about why and, and how and how they would have received it, how they would have understood this message what the general message of the book is, and that's that encouragement and hope to these Christians who are about to undergo this terrible, terrible persecution. Worst that's ever been known. The book was written in figurative code because to have written the message in a more literal sense would really have just given the Roman Empire another reason to persecute them and call them a group of, of traitors. The book was not, not only has great significance, for these people, but it also does for us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, in verse number 12, it says, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. If you're living a godly Christian life, at some point you're going to suffer persecution, is what this verse is telling us. So how do we respond? How does He want us to respond? He wants us to respond exactly like He told these brethren. Hold on. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you a crown of life. Sorry about the uh, rushing through at the end here. I know I've kept you a long time. We're going to have trouble with that all month long probably, trying to get in everything that we want to say. But I hope you've been benefited and blessed by some of the things we've talked about here this morning. The church is here for you. If there's anything that we can do to help you in your spiritual walk and spiritual life, please come forward as we stand and sing together.